Hey, Power Athlete Nation. I want to introduce you to our good friends at Thorn Nutrition. Thorn makes the best supplements I've taken, and I'm just not saying that for any other reason other than it's being the truth. Um, I got into the supplement game a long time ago through, you know, if you guys listen to the podcast, George Zangus, Marathon Nutrition, and, uh, you know, creatine and protein and some other things. And uh, supplements have always been important through all the blood testing and uh, trying to optimize micronutrients in the system through blood work. And every time I would go work with uh, Cosenta and Tom Incladon, whenever he would say, hey, these are the supplements I want you to take. This is where you're deficient. Thorn was always the default. And this is long before we ever met them mm-hmm. and had the opportunity to connect with them through Sornex and ha- and then reach out to them and make them a you know sponsor of the, of the collective and the symposiums and just really just create a, a really excellent relationship. And the reason being is we take the supplements daily. Like, uh, my wife takes them, my kids take them, and I am by far uh, one of Thorne's biggest fanboys. Uh-huh. Gut kits as well. So get some feedback on our gut health, which has well, been pretty interesting. Yeah, especially when you have vitamin A toxicity. Well, there's one way to find out. It's poop in a cup. Uh, yeah, well, you know, funny story. Uh, Tex <laughs> listened to... Uh, I think it was Rhonda Patrick who talked about eating liver, which is, you know, uh, a good idea. Tex took it a little far, started consuming two to four ounces of liver daily. And then we, through Thorn, ended up getting some gut work done and pretty figured out that uh, he was just bypassing his entire crib cycle. And even though he was eating carbohydrates, was totally ketogenic and was dealing with a vitamin That's A toxicity. Quick way to lose LDs. <laughs> well, So it's important that when somebody does some supplement recommendations or what, that it has to be very clearly out. These are the amounts you take. But, uh, you know, all kidding aside and all jokes, um, Thorn has been a cornerstone of not only my nutrition and my supplement routine for a lot of years. Uh, after, you know, working, like I said, working with Dr. Inkledon and taking other brands and then going back and getting tested and not seeing noticeable changes. Uh, the one thing that's really nice about Thorn is, you get what's in the package. It's the highest level tested. And I think if you're going to spend money on supplements, uh, Thorne's the only way to go. So if you're interested to see what I take, you can go to thorne.com slash you slash power athlete. It's thorne.com slash you slash power athlete. We'll have those in the show notes. And you also get 20% off. So you'll see the supplement stack, the stuff I recommend and the stuff that I'm taking. And uh, if you want to if you want to buy in, you'll get a 20% discount. On anything. On anything. Not just the stuff in our in our cart. But if you're interested in what we're taking, you can check it out at thorne.com slash you slash power athlete. And um, if you want to enjoy the episode. Yeah. Now tune in to Power Athlete Radio <laughs> and the magical... Uh, angelic voices of Mr. McQuilkin and myself. So, bye. Bye. Hey, Power Athlete Nation. Welcome to another episode of the Premier Podcast and Strength Conditioning. I'm John Walborn, and I'm joined by... Do I introduce myself? I think you do. Tex McQuilkin. A.K.A. Chris McQuilkin. That's right. Wow. Well, we're approaching Wade's Day. Yeah, we are approaching Wade's Day. And in honor of Wade's Day, we have Dr. Judith Villa Blanca from Children's Hospital Los Angeles on. She's a clinical researcher dealing with neuroblastoma for Children's Hospital in Los Angeles mm-hmm. and is part of a consortium looking to try to eviscerate, curb stomp, and rid the world of pediatric cancer, specifically focused at neuroblastoma. Yes, and in our efforts to give neuroblastoma a name, Wade's Army started well, 10 years ago. It has a name. Really, I think what we're doing is giving it a voice Ooh. and a vehicle because like you, 
the first time when Kate mentioned neuroblastoma to me, I have to agree, or I have to admit, I had never heard even, even heard of it. I mean, I've heard of leukemia. I'd heard of, you know, uh, all these other muscle muscular dystrophy through Jerry's kids. I mean, all these other pediatric cancers and afflictions, and I had never heard of neuroblastoma. And instantly, when you hear the word neuro, you think brain, but neuroblastoma is a form of tumors that form in the nerve tissue, more importantly, the sympathetic nervous system. So what's great is the doc goes over not only what neuroblastoma is, some of the telltale signs, how it affects, and more importantly, she's on the ground dealing with the research and more importantly, the clinical side for the trials and putting together drugs and protocols to help us increase survivability of these kids. Yes, and we we do provide this link at the end of the show, but if you want to check out her work and all that her team is doing across the, the across the globe, nant.org. Yep, that'll if, be tied up in the show notes. And she does help put numbers to this in which one child entering into a, a clinical trial costs $25,000. Yep. However, that $1 worth of research then potentially through the clinical trial leads to $15 or $15,000 of uh, support or mm-hmm. cl- or potential clinical trials through funding. So yes. uh, it just is a good indicator that every dollar spent supporting Wade's army in which we work and fund and, you know, fund trials. Cause that's basically how this thing works. We help the families and we look at funding clinical trials and not just looking to, you know, resurrect a bunch of stuff that hasn't worked, but innovative stuff thing that's um, really looking to be cutting edge. And what's great is the doc got into a ton of genetics, mm-hmm. um, you know, more importantly, looking at ways to, you know, figure out how to crack the code and eventually figure out how to beat this thing. Yes. So an hour listen and worth every moment you never, and it's not just pediatric cancer explains cancer as a whole, and especially the the direction of the research. You, you asked a great question to conclude the show and the, uh, what is the future of cancer research, which I thought was awesome. Well, and um, uh, I, I got to admit that before we got into this uh, neuroblastoma deal, um, I just kind of figured cancer was cancer. You know, cells grow, cells die. The ones that should die to continue to grow become cancer cells. And I didn't understand the difference between adult cancers and pediatric cancers and like the resiliency of it and how they kind of affect. I mean, a lot of the adult cancers are, are, you know, lifestyle, environmental, and some of the other stuff, whereas this is more genetic due to that young, uh, what does she call it, like primitive tissues, um, you know, that just are acting like they shouldn't. And uh, it's pretty fascinating. But, yeah, I mean, the, the bigger one, too, is understanding that neuroblastoma affects that parasympathetic nervous system and uh, really spreads out from there. So uh, early screening, that was another one we discussed. Um, but you know, some of the telltale signs. So, uh, it was, it was great to have her on and I'm stoked that we were to have this one in, in preparation for, uh, Wade's day. Wade's day, November 12th. If you want to get yourself involved, we got a fun Wade's wad that'll be featured in all power athlete training programs. Yep. If you'd love to fundraise, uh, head to power Wade's army, excuse me, Wade's army.org and click the simple join the fight button. If yep. you want to purchase a t-shirt. Join a team, figure out yeah, how it goes. Uh, Yeti's mug. Links are also there. So wadesarmy.org. And then have a listen and really empower your knowledge because you never know all the, the families in which we've helped through Wade's, Wade's Army. They've come to us from a, a recommendation. Somebody hearing the message, the word, seeing the T-shirt, asking a question, 
and then we're able to to aid and help the family. Cool. All right. Do it. It was like 30 bucks for a t-shirt and I think we sold 18,000 bucks worth of t-shirts that first year. Gave uh, money to Heather for solving kids cancer. And then the next year, I want to say we raised like 50 doing the exact same thing. And then at that point, we kind of wanted to do, uh, instead of just giving to a charity, we wanted to really help the families that were being, uh, you know, they're the ones that are really afflicted in this deal because there weren't enough treatment centers. And so we heard these harrowing tales of, you know, parents sleeping in the car and losing jobs and this. And I felt like they just needed support and there was really no organization where they could call up and say, hey, you know what, um, we're having these issues, these financial problems, can you spot us some money? And so we wanted to be able to not only help the families that were being, you know, really just raked over the coals with it, but then also go try to fund some interesting research and some things that we were interested in, which looked at like nutrition protocols and some alternate methods more so than just dosing their little bodies with a high amount of chemo and hoping that it doesn't come back. Wonderful. But, you know, it's efforts like that. They make such a significant difference for uh, moving the bar forward for kids. So that's really incredible what you did. Yeah, the um, not to uh, diminish cancer in any way because it affects in so many different people. But I think what was most hard for me is uh, there was so much like the NFL and all these different groups with breast cancer and prostate cancer and all these different organizations. And uh, I know it's kind of callous, but I'm like, can we at least give these kids a chance to get to these points? Like we're doing so much in terms of this research and here are these little guys that are, you know, I mean, you know, large killer kids under the certain age. And like, there's just, you know, like there just wasn't anything. And when Kate originally said to me, Hey, you ever heard of neuroblastoma? I had never even heard of it. Right. So here's this thing that's affecting these kids and it's so deadly, but yet there was nothing being brought to it. And since we started doing this deal, Children's or uh, Dell here in Austin is now championing neuroblastoma. And so there's more and more people coming to the cause. So I think with, um, with some funding, you know, just trying to understand it more importantly, put some treatments together that give these kids a better outcome. Yeah. I always tell people, I'm glad you don't know what neuroblastoma is because that means your family hasn't been affected in that sense. But, you know, there's about uh, 650 cases per year of neuroblastoma in the United States and it's instance is 10 per million children. So even though it's it's the most common solid tumor, which means a tumor that presents with a lump outside of the brain in children, I mean it, it is not well known. And so, yeah, that's that's increasing the visibility makes people understand why it's important to do something about it. So, is it because um, I mean, six hundred fifty cases? So, I mean, is and I know this sounds terrible. Like, are there not enough data points to really be able to understand like the uh, like the treatments. I mean, if there were, you know, tens of thousands of kids, I wonder if there would be more of a four alarm fire where now so there's more resources put together, there's more data points and more people are coming to it. It almost feels like with the greater amount of numbers, you get more focus. So you get more chances. So I feel like with 650 kids, like you have to be the pinpoint surgical accuracy to be no, able to figure this thing out. You, you are exactly right. I mean, I think that any kind of a rare uh, disease and children have many of them, you know, it's very hard to, you know, do fundraising, get awareness, get research funding. And the other challenge for us, uh, someone uh, who does clinical trials, you need numbers of patients to answer your questions. And so if you're talking breast cancer, you can answer a question that makes a 5% difference in a year or two. You know, for us, we can answer one major question for high-risk neuroblastoma in about five years, because it, it takes about, it, we get usually about 100 patients a year on a national trial. 
And generally, you need somewhere around 400 to answer like a A versus B kind of question. So it's, um, it's hard for us because we have to pick what's the question you want to ask among all the questions. And then as we understand more about the disease, neuroblastoma has a lot of different subgroups that are, as we become more knowledgeable, particularly about the genetics of the disease, then those little subgroups need, need to go off into a different therapy for that particular uh, genetic abnormality. And so that's going to make our challenge even more. But um, yeah, and it's, um, you know, it's a challenge for uh, pharmaceutical drugs, right? Because it's not a big market. So trying to get, uh, you know, drugs approved for children's cancer in general, um, you know, is very difficult. Uh, because of that reason? Uh, I mean, like, I feel like a lot of the research is being done on adults and then they're just trying to like extrapolate it out for kids or they're, I mean, are they actually designing these for kids or is it just kind of organisms at different points in life? I, I, uh, I like I've read through so many of these, uh, um, I'm, I'm, I don't know what the word is like pitches almost where people have asked us to fund trials and like, it's like, Hey, this, you know, we tried this drug. It didn't work. This drug didn't work. Now we want to kind of try them together and see if there's a better outcome. Mm -hmm. uh, it's just interesting where you're, you know, like how they're coming up with these, where they're coming from. And it's, you know, and the big problem is the drug companies are for profits. So, I mean, they're looking to find, I mean, there's benevolent work you hope, but at the end of the day, they have shareholders and they have people that are looking to turn a profit. And if they invest millions or hundreds of millions of dollars into something that proves it doesn't work, like they have to try to find and and that's another thing where you see so many times like hey this new drug hit it was developed for this but we actually found it had this side effect that now this is what we're using it for yeah well we always say children are not just little adults um and the types of cancer that children get um are different than the kinds of uh, cancers adults get the the way i kind of globally sort of look at it i think adults we tend to get more uh, cancers that are more of mature tissue, so like lung, breast, brain, and these are oftentimes there, there can be environmental factors like, you know, smoking or, you know, your diet, those kind of things. Children tend to get more what we call an embryonal cancer, so they're like very early primitive cells, babies, if you were, that, you know, don't know the rules of the road yet, and they persist in that uh, immature state. Um, and the good thing about that is they tend to grow more rapidly, which makes them a lot more sensitive to many of the standard chemotherapy drugs. Um, and actually, you know, our cure rate in children is much higher than adults, you know, for overall cancer. I mean, because you know, leukemia, the most common cancer in our own children has about a 90% cure rate. Um, so I, the, when we're looking at drugs, we definitely, um, we have a number of, of uh, you know, people that work in the lab and they're looking at all these different mechanisms that impact neuroblastoma. So when there's uh, findings in adult cancers that are similar, like melanoma or non-small lung cancer bears some uh, similarities, you know, we look at what works there and then we try it specifically in a neuroblastoma model in the lab. So it's not just, um, you know, oh, it worked in adults, so maybe it'll work for us. We actually look for specific data that it works in neuroblastoma. And we actually have done, you know, now there are a number of trials that there's a drug, dinotuximab, which is a monoclonal antibody that was just recently approved for neuroblastoma. And that, again, it does, affect, it, it does uh, have positivity in melanoma and some bone tumors, but it was approved for neuroblastoma. So sometimes we have drugs that, you know, are very specific. And sometimes we take an adult drug and trial it out in the lab first and only move it forward into patients if it looks uh, promising. Um, but we also do look at if a drug has an adult indication meaning that it's you know, gonna get marketed for breast cancer or prostate cancer, it's much more likely to be around for us to use. 
um, but we may use it, you know, in a different way, um, different doses, different schedules combined with other things. So it, it's, uh, we, you know, the adults learn from us. We learn from the adults. I, I like to look at it as a, you know, a interchange. Symbiotic. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, can you get into a little bit of like, um, I mean, for the listeners who aren't familiar with neuroblastoma, like what it is, how it affects, I mean, it grows in the nerve tissues, but really how it, you know, and that's what we know about the standard neuroblastoma, but then there's also these different variations. Uh, like I see like all these different names that tied to like blastoma, it's like glioblastoma and this, and there's all these different pieces. So I was wondering if you could just give us a little bit of roadmap to help those at, at home that are just not as educated on it. Hey, Power Athlete Nation, if you enjoyed this podcast and you're interested in supporting Power Athlete and getting involved with Power Athlete, myself and the crew here in Austin and in the global network, you can do it a few different ways. You can link on shop.powerathletehq.com. You can buy merch, you know, be the hammer, uh, move the dirt, all the really amazing merchandise that we put together. And we're going to have a bunch of cool stuff coming up here at the end of the year for Black Friday uh, that's going to blow your mind. We also have the best training programs in the game. I think the most efficient, most powerful, uh, well thought out, elegant programs that you will find. We're easy to get a hold of. Just go to powerathletehq.com, look for training. It's going to take you over to our best in class partner, Train Heroic, where you can look at Jack Street. If you're just trying to put on thick gobs of muscle and you want to get jacked as fuck, Jack Street's your program. We got Field Strong train like an athlete, allow us to foster and develop athleticism. That's really our flagship program for trying to make athletes more athletic. We got Bedrock, that beginner program. We got Grindstone for those of you guys that are in the fight, need a flexible program that lives with you. If you're still into getting your face melted by the dirtiest, nastiest, saltiest wads on the planet, check out Johnny Wad. If you're looking for a little bodybuilding, check out Johnny Bod. And if you're looking for a program, if you're in a situation where you go in harm's way, you're looking to kick in doors and take names and break hearts and all that good stuff, check us out at Hammer, the Holistic Athlete Movement Readiness Program that was developed uh, with some of the baddest dudes on the planet. So you can check us out in the programs. If you are interested in getting involved in the Block One Network with Power Athlete, you can first check out academy.powerathletehq.com. You can check out our methodology. And if you want to go that Block One track, travel out here to Austin and prove that you are composed of the metal that we're looking for to be in our Block One Network. So we're easy to get a hold of. You can support us in any way. So if you, uh, or enjoying this podcast and really like this content, find a way to get involved. Giving you a couple different options. We're looking forward to seeing you. Thanks. Sure. Um, so usually the blastoma usually refers to kind of those more primitive types of cells. So you'll see that blastoma root in a lot of, you know, different cancers. And neuro obviously refers to the nervous system. Um, so a lot of people think neuroblastoma is a tumor of the brain. It is not. Um, so it's a, a tumor of what we call the sympathetic nervous system, which is your unconscious nervous system that controls your heart rate, your blood pressure, kind of like I look at it as your idle rate, like a car. <laughs> and so it's always, it's always working and it's, um, it gets activated in times of stress or it's called the fight or flight system. So like if you're agitated, you have to run, your blood pressure goes up, your heart rate goes up. So that, that nervous system regulates all those things. Um, and the uh, sympathetic nervous system where it is located there's a gland on top of your kidney called the adrenal gland. And um, part of that is part of the sympathetic nervous system. And then there are nerves from it that run up and down either side of your spine. And then there's some clusters of nerve cells, like there's one in the neck about here, which is called cervical. That's the, that name for 
for neck. And so that's where neuroblastoma occurs. It most commonly arises in the adrenal gland on top of the kidney as a lump, um, or it can arise on either side of the spine or, you know, or in the neck. And in about half of children, when they come to you know, being diagnosed, the tumor has spread from where it started to other parts of the body and typically into the bone marrow, uh, into the bones, uh, sometimes the liver. And then very young children, infants, can sometimes present with um, like these uh, we call blueberry, blueberry muffin nodules. So they look like a blueberry under the skin. It's a blue nodule or like a very big liver. So there are some you know, peculiar things. 90% um, of kids with neuroblastoma present under five years of age, um, and the average age is 19 months. And I think one of the me important things about that is if you think about it, hits a lot of families, young families with their first child, and that's, right, you're still getting used to a toddler, and then you've got this to deal with. So I think that is a, a big impact of this tumor. We do see it um, in young adults. It's is much less common. Uh, in teenagers and adults, but I mean, the oldest patient I've seen was 40 when he was diagnosed. Um, so it does, it does happen, you know, rarely in adults, but predominantly. Yeah, uh, Adam from CrossFit um, LA in Venice, he had it as like a 26 year old kid. He had neuroblastoma. Wow. Yeah. I mean, it, and so I, I always thought it was just, you know, like uh, after the age of five, they were kind of out right. away from it, but then right. it's, there's these cases of people having it later in life, which seem even more wild that we would know one. Yeah, and it is um, the uh, what makes those tumors tick is differently different than the younger kids. Usually, the once the older you get beyond five, you tend to have what we call like a slower paced tumor. So, like under five, the tumor tends to grow very rapidly. Um, your treatment either works or it doesn't within a few years. The older patients can go. You know, I had one patient I treated for twenty one years. Um, presented when he was 10 and, and sadly passed when he was 31. So it's a much slower pace um, and it has different genetics associated to that group versus the young kids. Um, so again, there's all these, you know, subgroups of once you have neuroblastoma. And I guess the, the big dividing point is um, about um, half the kids are what we call high risk and about half are non-high risk. And the kids with non-high risk have a 90% chance of survival. They do very well. Um, and our focus there in terms of treatment over the years has been defining more and more who is does not have a big risk and making the therapy less, getting rid of radiation, getting rid of drugs that might be harmful to the heart or the kidneys, giving a shorter period of therapy. Sometimes in some of those patients now, we just watch them and it goes away. Um, the high-risk kids, the focus there has been, we're still at uh, right now 50% survival. That's improved from 29% when I started out in this uh, field 30 years ago. Um, so we've doubled, but we have certainly a long way to go. And there it's basically, we've intensified therapy in terms of dosage you know, to the max. And so now we're really trying to work again on refining who are the subgroups that we could do more, what we call targeted therapy. So if they have a specific abnormality genetically that we could find a drug that targets that instead of giving a drug that generically targets any rapidly growing cell, which is kind of a global thing of how chemotherapy drugs, many of them work. When did we start looking at cancer genetically? Oh, that's did that changed over the last 30 years? Yes, absolutely. Um, when, uh, let's see, when I was in my fellowship, now I remember, you know, we started doing a number of like genetic recombination things. And 
Um, Dr. Seeger, who I worked with at Children's Hospital Los Angeles for many years, uh, he published a gene called NMIC, which is still one of the most prognostic genes in neuroblastoma. Um, and they published, published that in, in the um, uh, 80s to say that that was a very strong marker. If you had multiple copies of that gene within the, this is within the cancer cells, they would multiply copies of this gene and it made the tumor grow very fast and very resistant. And these kids had a much worse outcome. Um, now we can actually, the, the techniques that are available now to do genetic analysis, you can now do it instead of a big chunk of tumor that you need to work with, you, we can do bone marrow samples with a few cells. We can do blood samples and look at circulating tumor DNA. Um, and so the techniques for that are really, they're, they're rapid, they're uh, smaller specimens, less invasive, because obviously drawing blood is a lot easier than having to take a, a chunk of tumor surgically. So we can get a lot more information. Um, the things we're still learning, you know, how, how do we use that information? And it, we may find pathways genetically that are abnormal, but how do we target that? The body is very clever at having more than one circuit. You know, it's not just like A goes to B, go to C. If B gets abnormal, it, it finds a detour. And then you find a detour here. So it's never usually as simple as, okay, you have this one genetic abnormality, target that, oh, you're done. You know, it's so, but it always adds into the knowledge and it definitely has, you know, brought us, brought us forward to have all these techniques. Do you, do you think that, that uh, the neuroblastoma is growing in vitro? Like, is this something that's, uh, you know, like as the baby's developing in the mother's womb, this is present. And then now we're seeing like the child, I mean, cause these kids are getting so like hit with it so young. Mm -hmm. I'm like, uh, like, does it have enough time to, you know, create and grow or is it something that's happening earlier on in vitro? Well, this is, this is the million dollar question. What causes neuroblastoma? And we don't know that. I mean, there are some rare familial cases where um, children have all the cells in their body have an abnormality in their genetics that leads to neuroblastoma. That's very rare. Um, we do see neuroblastoma diagnosed before birth, um, especially now that many moms are having ultrasounds. Um, you know, they'll find a mass. And generally, those children do extremely well. They generally have the non-high risk disease. Many of them can just be watched and the tumor goes away. And um, we have a, um, a very non-invasive test to help diagnose neuroblastoma. You take a urine sample and you measure these chemicals that this tumor makes in high levels. And so you can say if, if that uh, level is elevated in the urine, you can say this child has neuroblastoma. So there've been two screening studies done, um, children like in the first year of life, because again, the average age of presentation is toddlers, 15 months to say, well, could we catch it earlier? You know, when it's just a little tiny thing and we'll get it out and then it won't turn into this thing that's all over the body and high risk and very hard to cure. But what was found out is that the children that were diagnosed with those early screenings were all in the non-high risk group. So they were probably many kids that never would have presented. Um, and we know that um, children who died for other reasons on autopsy, you can find evidence of neuroblastoma. So there is this, very young children that spontaneously it resolves. And we don't totally understand that, but we don't think those children become the high-risk kids. It's a separate set of events that probably leads to those two different uh, scenarios. Well, I guess, I mean, we only have two options. It's either genetic or it's environmental. So, I mean, it's kind of, I mean, I, and, and I'm sure it's, it, like you said, it's, it's like a, the million dollar question. Uh, but I, I guess once it comes down to it really almost, doesn't really matter how it happens. It's just how, like once they get developed it and how do we treat it and how do we increase uh, survivability of this? 
because mm-hmm. it feels like at least in Wade's deal, um, you know, once they go through all the chemo and they fight it off, if it comes back the second time, they don't have the strength of their, or the resiliency within the immune system, I think, to fight it off. Or is it just that it comes back so aggressive the second time that it just ends up being the, you know, the final straw for them? Well, you know, that too has changed. Um, I think that we have gotten better, number one, in terms of um, getting them through the, the first line of therapy for the high-risk kids, which is about 18 months, and it's very aggressive and intensive. But we have modif- we've learned to manage that with you know, good supportive care so the child is able to tolerate more therapy if the tumor comes back. I can tell you uh, in the 80s when I started treating neuroblastoma, if a child had recurrent tumor, their average lifespan from there would be probably no more than nine months. And many of them died within months. Now we have children with recurrent tumors who are living years. And again, I think this is because we have new therapies that have different mechanisms than what they got originally. um, And they're not as toxic to the whole body so they can be tolerated. Um, And in terms of the immune system, it absolutely still does function in kids who have tumors that recur. And then we're also using drugs that Uh, enhance the number of immune cells. And we're actually even giving back some immune cells to the children, these cells called natural killer cells, where we're taking a blood sample from the patient and taking that to a laboratory and increasing the number of these cells in that sample and then giving it back to the child to help them have more cells to fight the tumor. So that's like the culturing, like the culturing outside the body and putting it back. And yeah. Right. So immune, I mean, immunotherapy, as you probably know is a very, uh, you know, hot avenue in all of cancer right now. And particularly in neuroblastoma because of the, the monoclonal antibody that I, that I mentioned, um, that made a significant difference in survival, um, for children with neuroblastoma. So that was the first proof that immunotherapy works. And so now we continue to try to figure out what's, you know, what's the best way to do immunotherapy, adding something to that. At what time point do you give that drug? Um, so it, immunotherapy is a, is a very, very active avenue and definitely something we learn more every day, um, but it's going to be, an, I think, a very important impact on the outcome. When, when you guys do the biopsies on the tumors, uh, you know, obviously you, you kind of do it, I guess, a genetic workup of the, of, of the tumor. Uh, are they all different or is there commonality in all of them? I mean, I'm sure there's uh, identifying factors in the neuroblastoma, but I wonder if like the genetic markers are the same where, you know, they're specific to the individual or is there really just a bunch of common ones that you're like, okay, these are the common ones that we're finding. We just don't know necessarily why they're expressing. Mm -hmm. There's, um, well, in terms of the genetic analysis, there's a standard uh, panel, you know, that, that is done um, in children. And, um, certainly there's ones we know, like NMIC, for example, um, I, you know, I could name a bunch of other genes with their, you know, their nomenclature, but there is a standard panel that we know are typically abnormal, um, and that help us to decide what treatment to give them. Um, and then, um, we, we are now like, for example, we just finished a, a trial we call precision therapy, which means looking at the genetics and seeing you, you look to see if one of the abnormalities that they have has a drug that matches it. So like there are certain drugs that, you know, target the RAS pathway, just to give an example. And so if a child has recurrent disease and they have an abnormality there, then we would tend to choose something that targets that pathway, maybe combining it with chemoimmunotherapy or whatever. So uh, we do absolutely use that, that information. Um, children's cancers in general, though, do have neuroblastoma and children's cancer in general have fewer genetic abnormalities than adult cancers do. So, you know, we have fewer things to target than many of them do, but 
Again, this is an, and it changes over time. So we also know that uh, the abnormalities that are present at diagnosis after you get therapy, they change. Um, they may go away and come back, the same ones, or you may get new ones. And this um, doing a blood sample to get the circulating tumor DNA is a really exciting you know, technology now because you can look as you're treating to see, okay, is, is this abnormality going away with the drug you're giving? And is something new there that we should change the therapy? So again, we're still learning the best way to use all that information, but that's a really elegant piece of information versus me just doing a scan every three months and saying, did the lump get smaller? And I don't know why. Now this is telling me kind of what's in there making it tick. So that's, that's really helpful. Uh, you're based out of LA? Uh, Southern yes, California Children's Hospital, Los Angeles yeah. is uh, like um, uh, how many places would you call like centers of excellence or, or really just uh, places that are really fighting neuroblastoma? I mean, uh, when we started this 10 years ago, I mean, there was only a handful. I just wonder if that's increased or if it's kind of like still kind of focused in different areas. Um, well, you know, as you probably know, different, uh, you know, children's cancer centers will focus in different ways. Um, we, we are uh, the lead center and part of a consortium called New Approaches to Neuroblastoma Therapy, um, which we started in the year 2000. So we just celebrated our 20th anniversary last year of, of that. And we have 12 sites around North America that are participating in that, which are all very um, focused on neuroblastoma, have a lot of expertise, see you know, a, a large enough number of patients to be part of that consortia. Um, and outside of, outside of that, there's um, you know, probably like another, I'd say like eight to 10 centers. Um, and again, I know when I first came to Children's Hospital and we were doing transplants for neuroblastoma, there was only maybe about four or five transplant centers around the country that did neuroblastoma. So we got patients from all over. Now transplant is a widely used technology. Um, and so it's done at most, you know, hospitals that have a significant population. So I think that number is always, um, changing, but it, it, you know, it, it does take a lot of expertise and different um, laboratory support and different uh, specialists to support a neuroblastoma program. Uh, we need surgeons, we need radiation oncologists, we need pathologists, we need all the supportive care uh, people in the hospital, infectious disease, cardiology, kidney specialists, intensive care. So you have to have all of those things to be a major neuroblastoma center. Yeah, that's, as John mentioned earlier, a big mission family that's living remotely or yeah. far away from the center. I mean, parents got to take leaves of absence from their job, uproot the families. So we aim to provide financial support. Another big branch of our fundraising is funding research. Mm -hmm. How important is private funding for neuroblastoma research and empowering people like Los Angeles Children's Hospital? It's absolutely critical. And I tell everybody, every dollar you give does make a difference. It really does. Because um, ultimately, you know, we apply to federal grants. And as you know, the federal budget is, <laughs> I don't need no. to explain that. Yeah, so, no. And, and, the fact and, that we're laughing about it, this is all we need to get into. Yeah. Exactly. Um, and if you look at the federal budget for cancer, only about 4% of it goes to children, sadly. Yeah. Um, and so that's something. And so for us to go for those types of grants, we really have to have a lot of data to say, well, we did this, we did this, we did this, and now you should fund this bigger project. So we have to start with small funding. So we'll do a lab project that leads us to an exciting finding that we say, okay, let's use this and design a trial where we can treat kids with this idea. And we do that. 
in a, a consortia like, like our new approaches to neuroblastoma therapy. And those, each of those clinical trials cost about $25,000 per child. I'm not talking about the billing to the insurance. I'm talking about what yeah, hard it cost. to do all the monitoring yeah. and yeah, and the data keeping and the, um, you know, the uh, federal safety approvals and things like that. So that seed funding, generally every dollar of seed funding we get probably can yield $15 in future grants. Um, and and you, you have to have like an infrastructure, you know, like an office, people who are competent and know what they're doing, ready to go. So when somebody in the lab comes up with a great idea, you can say, we're ready to run with it. You know, we that, don't have to build it before we can go. That, that's a powerful statement in itself. One dollar potentially leads to 15. The challenge with fundraising where we're saying, hey, get a $35 T-shirt and then... Yeah, part. I mean, leading but, to a twenty-five thousand dollar per. You know, my uh, um, I played in the NFL, and there was a lot of charities that were supported by the NFL. Uh, the problem was is that I think a lot of money was generated, but I was always a little saddened when you actually see the dollars that actually get contributed. Mm-hmm. You know, like the NFL like raises X amount of dollars, and they're like, you know, we give five percent. And I remember thinking, like, uh, not that it's disingenuous because I realize people are trying to make money, but I think it's. Um, it's uh, tugs at the heartstrings as a parent when people are raising money for, especially for pediatric cancer. And, you know, the money's going to all these different infrastructures and such a small slice is going to where it really needs to go. So when we started Wade's army, we wanted this like, uh, you know, very transparent, like every dollar that we can give, we give, and there's oversight. We're just not, you know, randomly giving it out to this. I mean, we wanted to support, like, I remember, you know, the one family, um, the kid was in a wheelchair. They didn't know how to get him around. So they hit us up. We bought him a minivan because they were, you know, like they had to get around and they had to get to the appointments and they had to get a wheelchair in and they didn't have the money for it. So just being able to support those people, uh, like those are the stories that I appreciate, but like also having a little oversight where, you know, uh, like I want to see some advancement. I want to see people outside the box thinkers coming in and trying new things, just not trying to recycle the other stuff that, you know, Hey, the drug company has spent a ton of money to try to develop this drug. It's been proven to not work. Let's continue just to try to drive it in there and see if we can find it for something, but more innovative stuff. So yeah. whenever we look at any of the grant, uh, or any of the requests for the studies, I just want to read innovation. Like how are we using technology, you know, uh, the testing aspect, whether it be genetic or, you know, markers in this and, um, you know, whether it could be as, as simple as like micronutrient deficiencies, like what, like, you know, and I, I know it's not that simple, but like, uh, just trying to jam the drugs in there, just kind of, as I was reading these things being like, God, like this is, uh, like where's the innovation. I like to think like we have cell phones, we have all this technology I mean, we're sitting here talking on zoom. Like, why can't we get more into that space into trying to fight this? Yeah. Well, let me, let me give you one good example, I think, that will illustrate kind of this whole spectrum. So um, there's a gene called ALK, which is uh, abnormal in about 15% of neuroblastoma diagnosis and maybe more as they recur. It's also present in non-small cell lung cancer. So there was a drug designed to target this called crizotinib, um, which you know is it's an FDA-approved drug. And we have a trial going in the Children's Oncology Group, which is a, a national consortia that does those A versus B trials for five years, the, the really big ones. Um, and they have a trial going where kids who have an ALK abnormality um, go on to a special arm of this trial and they're getting crizotinib. So meanwhile, um, Dr. Yale Mose, who's uh, one of our colleagues in Nantes, she's at Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. She has studied the ALK gene in, in her laboratory for many years. And the problem was that a lot of tumors could be resistant to crizotinib. 
And so she started studying a second drug that targets alcohol, lorlatinib. And what she found is that it would kill a number of the tumor cells that were resistant to crizotinib. And it had a, you know, a favorable toxicity profile. So within our NANCH consortia, our 12 institutions, um, we are now conducting what's called a phase one trial. So that's doing what's the side effects, what's the right dose. And that trial has had very promising results and both in terms of um, it's, you know, it's tolerable, we're seeing exciting responses, um, we're getting the drug levels that we need, we know from the lab we need in the patients and they can do okay with those. And so even though that trial is still ongoing, we have enough results that the children's oncology group is now amending their frontline study to change to lorlatinib from crizotinib. Oh, wow. So there's what we call a bench to bedside. So sure. it started out with her lab, she, she proved all these things. And even during the trial, um, she found that neuroblastoma needs higher drug levels in the lab than lung cancer did. And so even though there's a dose established for lorlatinib for adults, we are pushing it higher in kids because for neuroblastoma, you need a little more. Hmm. So again, it's very specific. It's very evidence-driven. Um, and this is one of the trials where we're testing circulating tumor DNA. And we can see over time in the patients on the trial, sometimes their ALK abnormality is there and it goes away. It may come back before we see something on the scans, or it may change, be a different abnormality in the ALK gene, maybe some additional abnormalities. So this is really elegant data to help us figure out, you know, how do we, how do we best use this drug? And, you know, how do we, maybe, you know, patient one needs to stop it after four times and go on to something else. But this other one, the, you can see that it's going away in the blood, so keep going. So it gives us an earlier marker than our scans. So I think that's a really elegant example of how a, a, a smaller consortia like ours that has just a lot of very focused expertise and very labor-intensive trials of new drugs that you really have to watch closely, and we get all that work done, and then we can go to all the centers around the country that do the um, children's oncology group trials, and those involve many smaller centers that don't have the same expertise. But by the time we've done all the safety and everything, we can tell them, this is how you get this drug safely. And you know, you can do this now. It doesn't just have to be at a specialty center. And again, if you can't come up with treatments that can go everywhere, right? It has to go to North Dakota and South Dakota where there's not, not a lot of big medical centers. You know, I mean, I, I trained at University of Minnesota in my fellowship, you know, and I had patients that were six hours away through two feet of snow and minus 60 temperatures. Um, you have to find something that can get to everybody, right? Or, you know, you're not doing your job. So. But, um... The uh, um, like it sounds like this. No, I mean, I'm, I guess it's the screening is not wrong, but like as the the testing and like the fact that you can almost like like you said before you were using scans and did it get bigger and lower, but now you've kind of drilled down and it's like such more at a much more like granular level to now you're you know you're not having to go in and biopsy the tumor. You can check it for blood. Like when did that kind of enter the? Uh, like the arena where now all of a sudden you just found much more sophisticated and as you said, elegant forms of being able to like test and figure out the efficacy of each of these drugs. Cause I remember uh, like 10 plus years ago when, when we were talking with these doctors, I mean, they were even talking about, you know, still doing these scans and trying to figure out the tumor was kind of growing and, and different sizing, but it sounds like now we have all these, you know, much more technology based to figure out uh, in real time if this stuff is having the effect we're thinking it does. Well, I don't mean to say that um, we are not using that yet as our upfront response criteria. We are still using 
uh, scans and uh, bone marrow tests where we actually put a needle into the hip bone and sample the bone marrow. Um, you know, the, um, the wave of what's going to be next is always in, you know, in experimental trials right now. I think that's where the, the genetic things, there are some abnormalities that we use a diagnosis to put you into the high risk or the non-high risk category. But in terms of changing therapy based on these tests, we aren't, you know, we're still learning what's the best way to do that. So, and, and I would say in terms of the radiology uh, aspect, you know, that also has been a huge advancement. Um, you know, again, when I started, MRI did not exist. Mm. Um, you know, we now have scans, we have very elegant detailed C CT scans, which are like slices of your body. So if I could slice your body like this, and we combine that with a, um, nuclear medicine test that I kind of like describe as like a Rorschach blot. So you, you inject something into the bloodstream of the child and where there is neuroblastoma, it lights up. And that's very specific for neuroblastoma. So we can fuse those two images. So like you get a color that lights up the bone where you might see an abnormality on the CT scan. So we're able just the diagnostic ability of the radiology that I have available to me now versus 30 years ago is phenomenal. Um, so that's also another advancement. We, our, our response criteria that we use to uh, grade response on these trials and to, to uh, change therapies is still based on, you know, radiology scans and, and some uh, um, bone and bone marrow tests. And we are not, and we do have some sensitive tests to look for what we call minimal residual disease by blood samples and bone marrow samples. We're still trying to find what is the optimal technology to do for that. So I'd say that's where we are now. Um, it's, it's, you know, and if you're treating a patient typically who's got relapse disease, those are all pieces you put in your head because there's not a standard pathway. There's not a proven cure for a tumor that comes back. So you consider every single piece of information you can get. You look at the scans, you look at the genetics, you know, you, you look at all these minimal disease detection tests, and then you decide what's the best way to go for that patient, even though some of it's not, you know, fully established, but it's like it's a it's a piece of information you have as a clinician to share with the family and say, this is why I want to choose this next pathway for your child. I was thinking like adults, it's almost like uh, like lifestyle, like you talked about, like diet, exercise. I mean, all these, you know, overweight. I mean, there's all these like uh, risk factors that put people at risk for cancer, um, you know, uh, lifestyle, you know, lack of sleep. I mean, you know, all these basics and, uh, these kids are, you know, should be kind of healthy coming out and how now they have this issue. Is there ever a time where there's other compounding things going on more so than just neuroblastoma? Like I was, I, I always wondered if, uh, um, you know, cause you know, somebody has, you know, high blood pressure or they have all these other risk factors and then they get cancer. Whereas these kids are, by most standards, pretty healthy, and then all of a sudden the tumor starts to flow. Yeah, that's usually that's usually the case. I mean, again, it's uh, we don't. It is not. We have not yet found any environmental factor that causes or you know contributes to neuroblastoma yet. Um, so we don't know if there is one out there. We don't haven't identified it, so we we can't say that. And generally, and I think that's one thing about treating children for cancer is you are able to you know, use more intensive therapies because they are very healthy, their organs recover very quickly. And we know, you know, sadly that there is, you know, like higher doses are more effective. And we've, we've proven that um, in neuroblastoma. And, but obviously it does have side effects and not just medical, but again, these are young families. They have other kids in the family, you know, they have work lives, they have 
other family members. And so I, I think that that's one thing about pediatric cancer. We are very much at our hospital, and I know all of our neuroblastoma centers, it's very much a team approach. You know, we have child life, we have social workers, you know, we, you know, we have nurses, we have a, a lot of, cause that is just as important as getting the right medication, you know, cause it's a huge impact on, on parents and the other siblings and the rest of the family. Yeah. I was just re-looking up, um, four of the studies that we've funded over the years, which is fairly interesting because now 2017 looking up and now a lot of the terms you're introducing, which meant nothing back then now that the ALK, the ALK yeah. inhibitors and things like that. Well, people always ask me, they're like, Hey, uh, what about that, that study we funded any progress? And I'm like, you know, it takes like five years to run the studies. And then after that, you have to have like the data crunch. And so like things that you, what we're funding today, like are, are hopefully we'll see in the future. Like, it's not like, Hey, we funded it today. And then six months from now we have information Believe me, we check in, but like the studies yeah, take link, a long time. Linked up at wadesarmy.org slash neuroblastoma. And so one I was looking at here, phase one clinical trial and started in 17 and then just clicking through and clinical drop it. We link up to clinicaltrials.gov and it shows the, the progress, the data, uh, when it started, when it's concluding, and I guess some updates that are well above my pay grade, <laughs> but, uh, it interesting in that. And uh, as John mentioned, the aim is to show you exactly where all the, the fundraising is going. And while it may be a $35, a large group of people each year come together for a quarter of a million dollars to then, well, it's, that's a, 10 it's like, crowd right fund, it's like crowdfunding instead of going out and finding maybe one or two donors, you know, I feel that's like cool. you get a team and that's why it's called Wade's army. Because I remember when uh, my wife pitched me this idea of doing something, I'm like, man, we're going to need an army of people to try to fight pediatric cancer. Exactly right. And that's where it started. Because, uh, you know, like, I mean, it'd be nice if everybody could just stroke a million dollar check and just basically just buy this thing out of existence and be like, you know what? I don't want kids to ever have cancer. I'm Elon Musk. I'm writing a billion dollars and we're giving you all this technology. And unfortunately, those guys are making solar panels. And, uh, you know, so I think the crowdfunding way of going about it uh, is allowing everybody because what's um I mean, uh, what's extremely heart wrenching is as we've started to do this, the amount of people that have come out that have either had a family member or a friend or somebody they knew affected by neuroblastoma, is like, you know, one degree of separation from everybody. Right. Right. So you so you think for you know would you say six hundred twenty six hundred fifty kids six hundred sixty five kids a year and yet you know here's a country of three hundred thirty million people and then you know globally our reach. To have uh, this many people affected by it just makes you realize how, you know, how interconnected we are as a population. Yeah, I know, you know, for our donors to our NANT organization, I mean, we very much honor, you know, different donors have different passions of where they want their funding to go. And we feel very strongly about honoring that. Some people want to support lab tests. Some people want to support, um, you know, the kids travel, whatever. I mean, those are all, those are all important. They're all essential to getting things done. And and, uh, and we certainly will provide a, you know, an update of where we're at because, you know, generally our studies, after a year of our study, we can certainly tell you some, you know, significant information. You know, we've entered a number of kids. We know the drug is, is uh, you know, what its side effects are. We typically in our dose finding studies don't talk about our response data until they're far enough along because otherwise, you know, people might, you don't know if the first five children don't respond and the next 15 will. And so you don't want to, you know, 
harm that trial by somebody thinking, well, I shouldn't enroll. Um, I mean, you, you, we have to function with statistics, right? You know, you have to, you want to get the right answer. Um, I know one of the questions we were talking about is like, why are consortia important? And that's because like, if I just looked at the kids that I treat at Children's Hospital Los Angeles, you know, I may, I have a random chance of getting kids that do really well or really, you know, badly in response to therapy. When you have 12 sites and we are spread geographically across the country, also to try to help parents not to have to travel so far, you know, when they need therapy, we want to try to give everybody something that's within reasonable access, um, you know, that we can put all those numbers together. And that's, that's how you learn. Um, and it's a, you know, it's, it's totally a partnership between the parents, um, you know, the families and us, because they're putting their trust in us to put their child on a trial that's something new. And, you know, we don't know everything about it yet. So can you, that's can how you, we learn. Can you talk about the families that are willing to participate in the trial? Are they, they've tried one, two, three opportunities, nothing's worked. So now we're going to, we're going to roll the dice on this trial, or is it, um, is it one of their first options? Um, in newly diagnosed neuroblastoma, those trials all are through the children's oncology group. So again, that's a national uh, group, which we are part of. Um, and it, you know, it has uh, like about close to 200 sites, you know, around North America that participate. And there's a group of us that sit down for each type of childhood cancer, leukemia, neuroblastoma, brain tumors, look at all the things everybody's doing and try to design the five-year questions. Is A versus B going to make more kids live? That's basically, you know, basically usually the question. So, um, so those, you know, those trials are, uh, you know, available, you know, broadly to everybody. Um, the, and I think parent, um, families come to, to clinical trials in many different ways, as you can imagine. Um, you know, some families are more educated, they're on the internet, they're looking, they're, you know, they, if you're in a big city like Los Angeles or Philadelphia, it's kind of easy to find your way to somebody like me, you know, who can say, okay, here's all the things that are going on. You know, I've met patients at uh, some of the parent symposia that like were in smaller states where there weren't big centers. And they're like, I just went to my local doctor, I had no idea all these trials were out there. Um, so, you know, there's, there's that. And there's some families that don't have the finances to travel. They don't have them. I mean, I've had patients that didn't have the gas money to come an hour sometimes, you know, and we had to help them from our social workers. So I, I think everybody uh, has a different comfort level with clinical trials and probably the, the children's oncology group trials are based on a, a lot of prior data. They're much farther along in the experience. The things we're doing in Nant are obviously many times, you know, the first time we're using a drug in children with neuroblastoma. So that's a different risk you're taking. Um, I think for most parents, when they're diagnosed, neuroblastoma is a foreign word. They don't know what a blood cell is. They don't know what a kidney function is. Talk to that parent a year later. I mean, they're so savvy. They can talk to you about ALK and immunotherapy, and they can give questions that challenge me, you know? So, you, you know, and so those parents are obviously, they're out there reading and, and, and searching, and they're going to a lot of, um, you know, forums where we present and other groups present, and, and then they seek out that therapy. So I think the answer is it depends on, really depends on the family, and, you know, their educational and, and uh, financial and social resources. So. Yeah. Connecting with some families that applied for our, our grants sure. and get hopping on the phone with them, with Heather. And then she's essentially got a PhD and all this stuff. Uh, well, I mean, well, uh, not, I mean, not, not only did she, you know, go through it with Wade, but then in the last 10 years, we've been evaluating all these grant proposals uh -huh. and she stays, still says, 
very connected and like the social workers and the doctors and people to the point where people have said, Hey, I don't have the money. And they've been like, well, let me connect you with this person. And, you know, we've read the, uh, the requests. And I remember being like, uh, like people would ask for a specific amount of money. And I remember being like, can I give you double? Like, I mean, dude, I, I'm like, I'm not going to send you 250 bucks. Like, let me send you 500 bucks, like use the money wisely, like do something with it. Uh, it's just, uh, I mean, the, and, and I'm sure doc, you know, more than, you know, we do, but like, the stories are so harrowing. Like you hear this and you're like, I like my heart just broke a hundred times. Uh, and you know, I mean, obviously the, the child going through it, you know, at such a young age, doesn't understand it, but the parent, you know, that feeling of helplessness where, you know, like this is happening to my child and I can't do anything to help them. Like that's the worst part of it. It is the worst part. And I, yeah, I mean, I think I always tell parents, you know, I think you need to feel you turned all the stones. Um, you know, like, and if people want to go, for second opinions or seek other things, you know, I think we're always like, we'll give you a medical summary, we'll help you find the right person, you know, we'll give you their contact number. I mean, the neuroblastoma investigator community, the, the pediatric oncologists like myself, you know, we're a very close-knit community internationally. And I think, you know, we all want, we all want to find the answers for the kids. So it doesn't really matter whether I find it or someone else finds it. You want to work together and share your information. That's the idea of consortia that you're putting the best minds together so you have all the information you can possibly have to make the best choice you can. And, you know, those choices have changed over the 30 years that I've been doing this. And thankfully, I think that we, we have eliminated a lot of toxic things um, and yet our survival is improving. So, but it's painfully slow. I mean, to still be at 50% is not where is you it, want to be. Is it um, uh, like, are the global numbers of neuroblastoma uh, in line with what we see here in the States, or is it something that's bigger here or bigger in other places? I just wonder, like, I mean, it, it, like it's, uh, if you look at like adult cancers, there's some really interesting like pockets of where yeah. certain cancers affect yeah. certain people, like, you know, stomach cancers in this pocket in here. Right. And there's right. other countries that don't even have this stomach cancer. So right. it's pretty interesting when you start kind of tracking. I just wondered if, and I've never looked at it actually, uh, if neuroblastoma is kind of globally if the numbers are pretty consistent. Yeah, there's not uh, there's not geographic pockets like there are for, you know, for gastric cancer or, you know, some other tumors. Um, and I, I, but I will say like that in, you know, um, lesser developed countries, you know, we don't probably really know the incidence um, because kids don't present until they're really extreme, have tumor in a lot of places and are very sick. Um, I think those are the hardest things when, you know, we get emails from families like that who, you know, are desperate for help and it's very hard to, you know, where medications aren't available. Um, and that, you know, that is still a struggle globally in our healthcare system, of course, you know, that it's inequitable in terms of treatment. In this country, we have, you know, in, in major European countries, we have all these various, you know, specialized therapies available for neuroblastoma, but that's not true everywhere. So yeah, so the global numbers. So it's not necessarily something environmental. I mean, like you were saying, you never found not an environmental. Yeah, as I said, not that we have not yet identified an, an environmental factor for neuroblastoma. But I uh, and I kind of always uh, have always thought that it was something genetic. But I always wondered if there was genetically tied to a certain uh, ethno group or you know group of people, um, you know, certain people of certain descent. But it, I remember kind yeah. of digging in, and there was, there was nothing to tie any of that stuff together. Yeah, it's a very small proportion of neuroblastoma that has a, a known genetic driver. Um, so it, it, that's a very small number of cases. And you'll see like a, several cases within a family line 
uh, of neuroblastoma. Um, so most of them, we do not know what the causative event is. We don't know if in there, we're assuming there's some genetic event that that primitive tissue, instead of going on to become sympathetic nervous system tissue and doing its job like it should, it persists as an, as an immature type of tissue that doesn't follow the rules and grows too fast and goes places it shouldn't. But we don't know ultimately what the driver is for that. And that, I mean, that's how you cure cancer, of course, you know, if, if you could find that driver and, and stop it or find the, the factor that leads to that driver. And we do not know those two things. Do, do you put a ton of research into that or is it more like uh, triage? Like let's, uh, you know, let's put our time and effort into uh, helping the kids that are afflicted with this more so than going out and looking at, I mean, I don't know, like uh, trying to figure out the cause. Whereas I wonder if like, you know, farther down the line, if we were to figure that out, you could almost do a screening ahead of time to know that, mm -hmm. hey, you know what, like, uh, you know, these two genes and this gene, if they express in this way, it's going to give you a chance of this. And, right. you know, as right. a parent, you could be, you know, no, that would be, that would be wonderful. Well, I, I mentioned the urine screening study, which, you know, turned out that was not an effective way to screen. Um, when we're, we look at the abnormalities in the genetics in the kids who actually have neuroblastoma, but then, you know, you go back and look at diagnosis, like how many kids actually present with that? And if you see that commonly, then you're going to say, well, maybe this is the driver. They all have this one gene, you know, and then they get the second thing and then that leads to the cancer. But so I, I, the, the, uh, Thing that raises your flag is what's in the kids that have actually presented with it and then you go back and you look so i i think there you know there definitely is research into both because you know we could stop doing all the other research on treatment if we could figure out how to predict you're going to get it and just catch it early and do something about it so it one feeds to the other absolutely if there if there's familial cases those get studied to look at what are the abnormalities in those families maybe that'll help us in some of these other cases is it something, I mean, definitely like the earlier you catch it, the greater the outcome? You know, no. And I, I have this, this is interesting because uh, one of the um, moms of, of one of my patients right now, we're working on a project to try to work with pediatricians to help decrease the delay in time to diagnosis for neuroblastoma. Um, uh, she found in serving a lot of parents that, um, you know, a lot of the kids, her own daughter included, present with vague symptoms like constipation or irritability don't want to take a nap, things like that. So we're trying to figure out, you know, how to, <clears throat> how to get, how to, uh, you know, make that gap shorter, right? And, and, and educate uh, everybody. So, you know, we're, we're kind of trying to approach the problem from a variety of different angles, but um, it's tough when you're in a pediatrician's office and you have, you know, 10 kids who come in with constipation and maybe one in, you know, 100,000 is going to have neuroblastoma. Who do you do a CT scan on? Who do you do an ultrasound on? Well, then also as a parent, you don't want to believe it's your kid. Exactly. Uh, like my little boy got diagnosed with type one diabetes about five, six months ago. And I saw the telltale signs. Like he all of a sudden, uh, like out of nowhere, uh, started wetting his bed. And so I was like, oh, this is kind of weird. Why did he regress? And I'll throw a diaper on. And then it was like, there's, there was all these like little things that I should know. But like, you're like, oh, it's just a kid. This isn't, you know, like this happens and you start to other parents like, oh yeah, you know, my kid regressed to exactly. like three years old, four yeah. years old. And so now I like think about it and I'm like, man, like I know these telltale signs. And we talked about it on the podcast and a guy hit me up uh, that his, I was either son or daughter was having similar things. So they took him in and got him tested and figured out that his blood sugar was super high. 
and he was yeah, in this so you're kind educated. Of, yeah, you're yeah educated. so so somebody took the information like right. oh my god like this is happening to me and i think uh unless you have you know podcasts like this or you're around this type of information uh you know maybe it gives you uh like arms you with the information as a parent because it's really easy just to be like oh it's not my kid he's fine everything's healthy this is just something but as you're saying like here's something where you know constipation and uh you know irritability and some of the other things like not taking naps i mean the kid could just be colicky and not like to do and, and usually they are. And I think the reason I was bringing that up is I think that puts a lot of guilt on the parent when they finally get to the diagnosis thinking, well, if I'd been here nine months ago, things would be different. So my bottom line is though with neuroblastoma, it is what it is from the beginning. If it's high risk or not high risk, which is a big difference, it is what it is. If you were here nine months ago, even if you had less of it, it would still be high risk or non-high risk, whatever it was. So really, we have not found in neuroblastoma that that delay changes, you know, what the child's outcome would be. Um, in the sense that if you let it go and it starts, um, sometimes neuroblastoma, for example, can make tumors behind the eye and squeeze the nerve to the eye. So like if something, or it can be near the spinal cord and press on your spinal cord. So those things, obviously, you need to, you know, take care of because they start to cause harm from the location. But in terms of the aggressiveness of the tumor and its risk of being cured, that does not change. And I, I always talk with parents about that because whenever I say that, three or four moms will just say, thank you, I'm so relieved because, you know, I've been living with this guilt because I kept telling my doctor and they kept saying, oh, she's just irritable. She's, a, you know, whatever, having problems at school. And then obviously as a parent, you feel like I should have known, you know, and, and I don't want people to chastise themselves for things that, you know, it's not, not their fault. It's an excellent question. No, I mean, the, uh, the guilt associated with, uh, with any like, uh, you know, childhood illness that happens as a parent, like, you know, you think like, I'm the parent, I'm the one in charge, I should know this. And you're, you know, and uh, it's like, it doesn't matter what it is. Like, uh, like, I mean, it's, uh, I'm, I'm in a Facebook group for like parents with like type one diabetes kids. And like these parents, like, like, like the, you could almost feel like the compensation patterns of like trying to be like, so adhered to all this stuff because out of some guilt and like at the end of the day, uh, you know, you just work within the framework in which you're presented and you do the best you can. And uh, if you got to carry a little bit of guilt around, that's called parenting. I'm sure our <laughs> parents have got plenty. I'm sure everybody, I, my mom constantly asks me, was I a good mother? I'm always like, oh yeah. And then my brother and I will roll our eyes, you know, like <laughs> I was nice to you guys. We're like, oh, define nice. It's different by today's standards. But uh, it's um, like, uh, yeah, it's a, it's a sad thing to deal with. I just, um, what's on the horizon? Like, is there, is there something that you're really excited about? I mean, the immunotherapy, I remember reading a bunch of stuff with, with cancer and like the CRISPR where they were talking about gene editing. I mean, there's been some really amazing technologies. I wonder like, what's on the horizon? Like, what do we keep our eye on that you feel like might be something that's going to crack this code a little bit? Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, I, I think, you know, the, the genetic information coming out is going to continue to unlock secrets about this tumor that we can exploit to develop new treatments. Because if you know what makes it tick, you can go after the tick. Um, I think some of the things that are being tested right now that I think are positive, um, we've been doing a number of trials um, over the years with uh, MIBG, which is a uh, it's called a targeted radiotherapy. So I think people are kind of familiar with x-rays. And if you get radiation treatment, you stand next to a machine and it emits a beam and that, you know, hits your cancer and kills the cells. 
So instead of doing that, we uh, have a radiation that is in a liquid form. So there's a, uh, the molecule actually floats around and finds the neuroblastoma cells inside the body, wherever they are. So again, you're not like radiating through normal tissues and damaging them. You're putting the drug in the bloodstream and it goes to where the cancer is and, you know, and, and is absorbed into that cell and gives it radiation. And we're now combining that with uh, some immunotherapy with dinatuximab, the antibody that has been shown to improve survival. And we just finished a, we call a randomized trial where patients are randomly assigned to one of three treatments, um, MIBG plus something else to see if the something else made a difference. And we found that this one drug called Varinostat actually significantly improved the response rate compared to the other two choices. And so now that's our standard platform for MIBG. And that's now we're trying to look at that plus or minus the immunotherapy molecule to see what can we bring it up again. Um, in the meantime, actually Children's Oncology Group is for the first time testing MIBG in newly diagnosed kids. So kids are getting, again, randomized to either get MIBG during their first few months of therapy or not. And we've done a lot of trials in recurrent relapse uh, patients in our NANT consortia. Um, and it's, MIBG is like one of the most active agents for recurrent tumors. About 30, 40% of the kids will have some response. Um, so it'll be very exciting to see if that adds into, um, you know, the outcome. And we're looking at adding this antibody dinatuximab into the first few months of therapy. Right now, we've been giving it after you get all the intensive chemotherapy, then they get a period of six months of immunotherapy. So now we're saying, well, what if we give it sooner? Um, and we found in recent years that giving that antibody with a pretty, okay, I realize when I say easy chemo, chemo is never easy relatively, you know, low, low intensity chemo, um, has a, a tremendous response rate, like about 50% of kids who have recurrent tumors will respond to this chemo with the immunotherapy. So we're trying to figure out, you know, why, you know, how is that, that working together and how can we um, maximize that, maybe adding in, you know, something else that would promote the immune system. I mentioned we're looking at natural killer cells, which are um, kind of, fun name, but it, these are cells that are in all of our bodies that can attack foreign things, including cancers. And we know in, in neuroblastoma, they can be very effective and they can work with this antibody that we know is effective. Um, and our chemo and things can bring down the number of natural killer cells. So we're trying to infuse more to uh, help the patient. Um, so I think that's exciting. And you may have heard about CAR T cells. This is a very exciting technology. So, um, I always think people picture like a car and maybe a way, in a way it is. It, it's a, a T cell again is one of the cells in your bloodstream. It's one of your white blood cells that uh, is part of your immune system that will fight infections, um, but it also can attack cancer cells. And so what people are doing is taking those T cells and then they're attaching, uh, if you will, like a little targeting agent to the surface of the T cell. So again, it will go into the body through the bloodstream and find the cancer cells. So there's CAR T cells that are specific for certain kinds of leukemia or for certain kinds of solid tumors. To date, we've not found, that has been very effective in leukemia and it's actually a newly FDA approved therapy um, for leukemia. And it's uh, had like an 80% response rate in kids whose leukemia has come back after standard therapy, which is incredible. I mean, if we get more than 20% of kids to respond in that situation, we're thrilled. And this is 80%, wow. um, but they don't all stay there. So uh, we're, uh, there's a number of groups that are working on CAR T cell therapy for neuroblastoma. 
Um, and so that's another exciting avenue that I think is, you know, coming down the line. So those are kind of the things that are, you know, out there now. I think all promising. I mean, I think they've, uh, and, and I mentioned actually the ALK inhibitor or latinib. So we're very hopeful that this is going to be an exciting thing for the kids who have the ALK abnormality. Well, no, this has been great for me. I mean, as we're going through and having all these discussions with Heather and, you know, what we're going to try to fund this year, it's always great to hear what's cutting edge. And when all of a sudden it pops up, hey, that seems like something of value. So, Doc, thanks for taking the time to discuss neuroblastoma and come on Power Athlete Radio. You're very welcome. It was my pleasure. Cool. Thanks for having if, me. If, if people want to support and, and learn more, do you have any links, websites, social that they can head to? Sadly, we do not have the staff. That's a funding issue for social media. We wish we did, but we do have a wonderful website. It's www.nant.org. And there you will find a link to where our sites are, what trials we're running, um, we have, our, we had our, our parent group, including Heather, who helped us, you know, write answers to some common questions about why a clinical trial, you know, what are these phase one, phase two, what do all these things mean? So, um, and I think the biggest thing there for parents uh, or people who want to connect, um, our operation centers here in Los Angeles at Children's Hospital Los Angeles, we'd always be happy to talk with people who are interested in supporting us. Um, and, uh, you know, if you have questions about our trials, I'd suggest you contact one of the doctors at the sites that's closest to wherever you are cool all right thank you thank you have a good day you too thanks now it's time for you to empower your performance head to powerathletehq.com backslash training to choose from a number of programs to meet your specific performance goals and if you like to break a mental sweat too visit academy.powerathletehq.com and become a real stakeholder in you or your athlete's success Until next time, bye!